Well, friends, I bring you greetings from brothers and sisters in Christ in Cambodia. Amen. You know, there are, there are folks over there that believe that too. It's remarkable. It really is. You know, Dorothy was right. There really is no place like home. <laughs> and it is great to be back. And when I have been able to sleep, it's been great to be doing it in my own bed. My body is still somewhere between here and Cambodia. Um, thank you for your prayers. Thanks for your support of my going. It was an amazing trip. I have not been able to get my act together and organize pictures, but I would love to uh, get those in some kind of presentable order with more stories and details. Uh, thinking maybe, maybe one of these Wednesday nights in, in the near future, uh, we'll, we'll get information out. For those of you who might want to come and, and hear more, see more, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that you have that information. It, um, it's a fascinating place, as I have told you before. Uh, there are three seasons in Cambodia, hot, hotter, and hottest. Um, I was in the air at the end of hottest which is also the rainy season. They're not kidding. <laughs> oh my. You walk outside after rain and it's like you've walked into a sauna of, you know, 100 plus degrees. This was a different trip, as most of you know from my last one. I uh, was able to connect with the eight core pastors of Transformation Churches just briefly on this trip, but it was such a blessing. They had been part of a conference right up until the end of the week that I arrived, and they all stayed an extra night in Phnom Penh so that we could spend Saturday together. And that was so special, uh, just an amazing blessing to, to be with them, to not have seen them that long ago, and uh, to to more or less catch up a little bit with them. I, I sensed a greater frustration in my own life this time than last regarding my ability to speak the language. Drives me nuts. But I got to tell you, there's just no way apart from the miracle of God that I will learn Kamai. <laughs> Man, traveled around the country this time, started in Phnom Penh, and then um, if, you, if you look at the, the map of Cambodia, there is a large lake that is somewhat in the middle of the country. Went up around that lake and visited the different Transform Asia ministries as far north as the Thai border uh, where there is an orphanage. Uh, those were some really special times. Fun to see the ministries that Transform Asia is doing. Fun to connect with uh, lives, young and old, that are part of those ministries. So... Just a couple of quick stories that kind of book in my time there. The first one was uh, as we headed up north around that lake, we stopped in, in a province called Ananwe and then at a city that is known as Batambong. And in that city, or just outside of that city, there is a Transformation Ministry. They call it the Women's Development Center. And they are, they are they're girls ranging in age from 14 to, I think the oldest was maybe 20 or 21. And most of them, well, all of them, have come from very broken families, 
Uh, some are victims of very uh, abusive families. Some are victims of uh, the trafficking industry in Cambodia. And so it is just, it, it, it's, it's fun, it's special to be a part of their lives in just sort of a surface way, because we can't really talk. Although a couple of them knew a little bit of English. So one of my most memorable events was hanging out with most of the, the majority of girls. There were a couple of boys that they, they work there. They're kind of part of the staff. But they're, they're young as well. So Seton, who is the director of Transformation, my translator, he had to leave to go to a meeting in town for an hour. So I said, well, that's fine. You can leave me here. So there I am, you know, with these kids. And some of them just a little bit of English, I have no Kamai whatsoever. But I managed to communicate to them, okay, it's time for my Kamai lesson. Oh my. So they taught me how to count to 10. I can't do that because I've forgotten already <laughs> what they taught me. And then I wanted to learn their names. You have no idea how something as simple sounding as that can be so incredibly impossible. Most of their names, with the exception of one young woman, I remember her name because it was Nom, N-O-M. I've got that. I've got Nom down. The others are mostly two-syllable names. And they make sounds that we can't make. So... They would tell me that, so, you know, we're going around, you know, the, the circle, and they're telling me their name. And I would manage to communicate through the help of someone who knew a little bit of English, again, slowly. Well, after the third or fourth time, I thought I had the name down. They were still laughing at me. <laughs> which I just considered my ministry to them. Give them a source of laughter. You know, this American idiot can't pronounce our names. But it's remarkable. I have to tell you, I would listen closely and I would say what sounded to me, I, was, I swear I was saying the exact thing that they had said to me. And no, they still laughed at me. So that was my Kamai language lesson. Very successful. Towards the end of the trip, I was back in Phnom Penh and went to uh, be part of a worship where an English pastor friend of mine who was also in the country at the same time was preaching that morning and uh, he preached through a translator. Uh, but there were, there were a number of, of Westerners in that small congregation as well. But I was struck with, again, just the... the beauty of the body of Christ. The beauty of the body of Christ as, as we gathered in this small building and, and just sang praises to the Lord. Um, I, was, I was with some of those many knees who are bowing to Jesus around the world. And, and it, was, it was so precious. Um, the... The, the language of music just uh, ministered to, to my heart and my soul as I spent time with those believers in that place. 
And you, you come away from an experience like that, and, and you know if you have been uh, in, in a different country and have had contact with God's people or worshipped with them some way, somehow, um, it's, uh, it's, it's vital. And it just, it just sort of shapes you in a way that you can't undo. Cambodia is not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, there, is, there is increasing unrest in the country. Um, there has been conversation, I don't know if it's official yet, but there's been conversation about the U.S. State Department adding Cambodia to its list of no-travel countries, or at least cautious travel. Now, you don't, you don't really, I didn't sense anything as I was there, but, but talking to those with whom I could communicate uh, they, they feel a growing sense of unrest and, and pressure. Uh, it's very difficult to be Christian. It's a very Buddhist country. Um, and uh, for many who have chosen to follow Jesus, it is just automatic rejection from their, country, from, from their families. Uh, one of the young woman, women that I, I actually met her on my last trip, I didn't see her this time, she directs the children's, uh, it's called the Joy Learning Center. And it is a ministry to these, just these precious little children that live in the dump in Phnom Penh. And if you were to, to meet this young woman, her name is Sreon. That would be for us, S-R-E-Y-O-N-E. That's a pretty easy one. Sreon grew up in the jungles of Cambodia. And her father is an abusive alcoholic. Her family still lives in the jungle. She's a remarkable young woman. You would, you would meet this woman and you'd just go, wow. She's, um, Cambodian women are very hard to peg in terms of their age. And of course, I don't ask unless they're really young. Seems kind of rude, but I know that, that Sreon is in her mid-20s. She looks like she's about 17. She speaks amazing English. She loves Jesus with a passion. She's the director of this ministry. In terms of Cambodia, she is, she is just a remarkable person in terms of what she has accomplished and what she has in her life. And her father despises her. Not because of what she's done, but because of Jesus. Just has no interest in her Jesus and, and can't see how Jesus in so many, many ways has changed or made it possible to change uh, for his daughter. So, a couple of stories that kind of bookend my trip. There'll be more pictures and stories. We'll, I'll get my act together and, and uh, we'll plan that and let you know when that's happening. But it's great to be here. Thank you again for your prayers. Do you remember the creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now there's more. Now there's more, but we're not going there. <laughs> well, that was good. I'm really glad you were heading right in there. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Earlier this week, I read this, uh, this little story written by a dad about his kids and their relationship. He said, sometimes my kids will slip up 
for fun, uh, they'll call me by my first name, Todd. Of course, they do it in jest, not with disrespect, but I'm always eager to correct them just the same. Why is it such a big deal to call you by your first name, they ask. Well, it's not, I say in response, it's, it's, it's not disrespectful. It's just that you don't want me to start treating you as though you only know me as Todd. You want me, you need me to be dad or father, not Todd. Friends call me Todd, but I wouldn't die for most of my friends. I'd die for you. So you call me dad or father. He goes on to say, none of us has a right by virtue of birth to call God our father. Only one person has that right, Jesus Christ. In fact, only through Jesus do we learn to call God Father. Only through Jesus can we call God our Father. You can't have the fatherhood of God without embracing the sonship of Jesus. And so this morning, we are, we're moving into what I kind of think of as the, the main content or the heart, if you will, of the Apostles' Creed. You know, it's developed by early believers before the Bible was the Bible, developed to be a teaching tool for converts to the faith and a litmus test for orthodoxy. And in a pluralistic religious culture and a Roman political climate, which is where the creed was, was, was birthed, that climate was growing increasingly intolerant of Christians. It was, it was essential to identify what was distinct about the faith, and to be able to answer that question, well, what do Christians believe? And in many ways, it's not that different, certainly from Cambodian culture, not that different from our culture in some ways. So before I went jaunting off to Cambodia, we uh, considered together that opening phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what I hope you remember is the distinct placement of the words. We talked about that. In the Roman world, the gods were considered almighty. But the idea of the Christian God being a father who is almighty, that's different. It sets him apart from the pantheon of Roman gods that were available for the people to worship. He is mighty enough to create all that we see and know, but he is a God who chooses to reveal himself as father to his people. And remember too, we said that the father in the Roman household was almighty, and very often that was, that was a rough, uh, uncaring, even abusive almighty, treating the family members in, in ways that were, that were slave-like. That being the case, the early believers were still not detoured from referring to God Almighty as Father. And I think that's a healthy challenge for us. Earthly fathers are imperfect, and they have all the potential to be awful, and many are. And some of you have had those awful fathers. But regardless of the bad rep, the early believers affirmed their belief in God as a good father, important enough to include it in this formative creed of the church. And they believed that he was a good father because that is who Jesus revealed him to be. So let's look at that second 
phrase this morning, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's significant that the creed expresses belief in Jesus, just as it expresses belief in God and in the Holy Spirit. In the the Greek translations of the creed, the verb expresses the idea of both initial belief, I initially put my belief in this God, but it also expresses the idea of ongoing belief. And one commentator suggests the words believing into. I believe and I'm believing into in order to get at that idea that we believe these truths more and more deeply as they impact our lives, as we begin to experience change in us as a result of what the Holy Spirit is doing in response to our believing. And there is no doubt that these expressions are Trinitarian in nature. God three and one and one and three. And man, do we struggle to understand that, don't we? We've talked several times about the Trinity here at Applewood and trying to wrap our minds about that. Give me just three or four minutes to suggest something to you. I I read something that just kind of piqued my interest this week. I think one of the reasons, and I have felt this for some time, that maybe we struggle, everyone does, but maybe we struggle a bit more with the idea of Trinity as as American Christians because of of our idea of the, the word one. We talk about God being one, the idea of one or, or oneness. Now, Webster defines oneness as the fact or state of being unified or whole, though compromised, com- comprised excuse me, of two or more parts. And so, we think of individuals alone coming together and becoming one. In our minds, it's the opposite of being alone. Individuals who are alone but come together as one, even though they are still individuals. Leonardo Boff is a Brazilian Catholic theologian. I've I've never read anything by him until this week. This grabs me. He writes this. He says, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in reciprocal communion. They coexist from all eternity. None is before or after or superior or inferior to the other. Each person enwraps the others. All permeate one another and live in one another. Your head kind of hurt at this point? He says this is the reality of the Trinitarian communion so infinite and deep that the divine three are united and therefore one soul God. It stretches my brain, but I like that. Because there is a difference between oneness and aloneness that I think we as followers of of Christ and believers in the triune God need to, to try to grasp. God is one. But God is never alone. The persons of the Godhead that we talk about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they've never been alone. 
God is one in an eternal community of love. Always has been, always will be. Anything else is not the Christian God. What do you think? Kind of a different perspective, isn't it? That, that sense of communion for all of eternity, past and, and forward. Okay, with that in mind, let's stand together and read a familiar text from Hebrews chapter 1, just the first three verses this morning. <clears throat> Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hallelujah. All right. Let those words just kind of sink in for a minute. Radiance of God's glory, exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, purification for sins. Okay, go ahead and be seated. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us this morning. Don, can we have that next slide? Okay. Here are all the words again, kind of compacted so that it can all be there. I want you to just talk with your neighbor for a minute or two. What do these words cause you to think about Jesus? This is about Jesus. In the past, God spoke to his people in many ways, but now he has spoken to us by his son. So, talk with your neighbor. What do these words cause you to think about Jesus? See what your neighbor thinks. Man, it's buzzing in here. Whew. All right. Must be lots to share. You're just dying to speak, aren't you? What do you think? What does it cause you to think about Jesus? Monica. Your neighbors? These neighbors in particular? Okay, these neighbors. They said not equal. Okay, okay. They feel like that the, 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 the passage is putting more of an emphasis on Jesus as God versus humanity. It doesn't feel as, as equal, human and God, in, in this text. What else? No, no questions allowed. No questions allowed. <laughs> Go ahead. Somebody get some wood and some matches. We got a heretic right here in the second row. <laughs> and you think I'm going to have an answer to that question? <laughs> well, then I'm not going to know if she doesn't know. <laughs> it is a mystery. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, did you all hear that? We see God best through Jesus. Amen. We want to understand who God is, we, we, we see him through Jesus. Peg. 
Are you asking me if there's a hierarchy in the Trinity? Oh, okay. I think, a couple of quick responses. Oh my goodness, it's 1025. <laughs> but you, you raise good questions because that, that has been conversation in the church for ages. I think where the church comes out is there's an understanding, at least in terms of our humanness trying to grasp the divine reality of the Trinity, that there is a sense of subordination within the Trinity, Son to Father, Holy Spirit making known the Father and the Son. But in terms of relationship to one another, I think most theologians would come out on the side of saying it's an equal community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equal. That's an excellent point. Yes, yes. Good point. Good point. And, and, and it's, that's communicated to us in language, and language itself is another limitation for us. But Doug's point, if you didn't hear him, good clarification is that we're talking about the incarnate Jesus primarily here. Jesus as the man, Jesus in the flesh. Jesus was preexistent as a part of, you know, coexistent in the, etern- in, in the Trinity before he ever came to earth. Karen, you want to say something real quickly? Was that you? Oh. What would you do? The only problem with that in church history, my brother, is that the fathers would not agree with that language because Jesus was not like a human. He was a human, and he was God. But you're, you're going down the right path. We understand God better when we see God lived out in flesh and bones like us. Can we go with human nature? That ant nature thing bothers me. So. Our perception, yeah, which is what Doug was alluding to as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotta go, gotta go. Lee, it's a question. No. I'm going to. Jeez, he's the chair of the church. What can I say? Yes, and again, the struggle of human language to capture that. I mean, that's what the Apostle John does all through the, 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 the letter, you know, the, the, the revelation. I can't speak. You know, when, you, when we read Revelation, we sometimes are trying to, to pin specific definitions on things, when in reality, we're reading something that John is, is struggling to describe heavenly realities, many of them in human language. Okay, I'm not looking at anybody's hands. No, Zach, we've got to talk later. I'm sorry. All right. One word, one word. I asked you, what does this cause you to think about Jesus? Everybody say it with me, special. Special, yes. That's what is being communicated in this text. Jesus is special. In the ancient world, we know this from the Old Testament, people were anointed as a sign of being set apart by God for specific purpose. Kings, prophets, We see that throughout the Old Testament. The name Christ, which is really more of a description than a name, comes from the Greek word that's equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means anointed or anointed one. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus was the Christ. He was God's anointed one which means he was sent for a specific purpose. 
because that's what anointing signified. I think there's a powerful irony, if you will, in both name and office used together. Christ is not a last name. Jesus is not a first name. It is Jesus and a description of his office. Jesus means, it's Yeshua, Joshua in Hebrew. Or that's what we would translate from the Hebrew into English. God saves. Yeshua. God saves. Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. And so, literally, Jesus Christ means God saves. Anointed one. Anointed to do what? Anointed to save. Amen. Thus his name. So it, it's, it's powerful. And the early Christians, they banked on that. Jesus, the one who saves, God's anointed one to come and do the saving. For the early Christians, and this is what I hope you walk away with, Jesus as the Son of God was non-negotiable. And as I said before, we can't know for sure what was in the minds of the framers of the creed, but we do know that one of the theological axioms of the early church was the conviction that only God can save. This was formative in later creeds that were written. Some of you have heard the Nicene Creed, uh, probably as well known or better known than the Apostles' Creed in, in many church circles. Fourth century, adopted by the church in the city of Nicaea, thus the name Nicene Creed, modern-day Turkey. But let me just read this statement to you about the nature of Jesus. It says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. Figure that one out, eternally begotten. God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. The early church tried to put definition around what they knew to be true. The revelation of God in his Son was a hill that they were going to die on. Can't die on every hill. This was a hill that they would die on. The church believed, based upon the truth expressed in our text, that Jesus the Son was God in every way. But he had put flesh on. He had become human. If he wasn't God then the church knew that he was not the savior of anyone because only God can save. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Jesus is very special. You may know the name John Jeremiah Sullivan. He's an American writer, musician, teacher, editor, contributing writer for New York Times Magazine. He describes what he calls an adolescent bout with evangelicalism. Sullivan today has walked away from the church and a biblical faith, but I think it's interesting. He says he can't fully reject the person of Jesus Christ. He writes, at least once a year since college, I'll be getting to know someone, and it comes out that we have in common high school, common a high school Jesus phase in our lives. Of course, that always gives us a laugh, except a phase is supposed to end, or at least 
give way to other phases, not simply expand into a long preoccupation. My problem isn't that I dream I'm in hell. It isn't that I feel psychologically harmed. It isn't that I feel a sucker for having bought, bought it all. Listen to this. It's that I, I love Jesus Christ. Why should he vex me? Why is his ghost not friendlier? Why can't I just be a good enlightenment child and see in his life a sustaining example of what we can be as a species? Sullivan claims that once you've known Jesus as God, it's hard to find comfort in Jesus as just another man. And even after years of unbelief, he admits that one does have doubts about one's own doubts. Jesus is God. Jesus is special, the message of the early church. The heart of the Apostles' Creed is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the church had no doubt that he is God, God in the flesh, come to save. Because, again, if he's not God, he saves no one. Okay, can we put the next slide up, Don? And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In our remaining time, we're going to fly through these statements. I'm going to take them out of order. Start with conceived by Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then come back to our Lord. For early Christians, these statements about conception and birth were all about the unique nature and the realness. Can I say it that way? The realness of Jesus in the flesh. There is, there is a, there's a theme that I think is, is kind of running under this. Uh, and you have to think back to the Old Testament Story after story of, of barren women. You remember some of them. Sarah, Abraham's wife. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Rachel, Jacob's first wife and really the wife of, of his heart. Barren women who could not conceive until God opened their wombs is often the phrase that we find in Scripture. And from them came Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Samson's mother was barren. Samson's mother, or, um, excuse me, Samuel's mother was barren. And then if you jump to the New Testament, we encounter a barren woman in Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. And so the theme of a barren woman plays a significant role in Scripture. And when the barren woman conceived, it was understood as a specific act of God so that God's purpose could be fulfilled. The church understood that in the birth of Jesus. One commentator, kind of a a new idea, sees Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the culmination of the barren woman theme in Scripture. Now, not barren in the sense that the others were, that they, they tried but they could not have children, but barren in the sense that she could not get pregnant because she had not been with a man. Those were her words to the angel. He writes this about the statement conceived by the Holy Spirit. He says, What is intended is not an explanation of Jesus' biological origin, which is where we tend to go. As moderns, we look at it through biological lens. He says, rather, to make plain that just as in the past times, God raised up leaders for Israel out of barren women who conceived by divine intervention, now the barren woman, par excellence, a virgin, conceives by divine intervention. 
by the Holy Spirit. And the child she will bear will be not only exceptional, but unequaled, the Son of the Most High, whose kingdom will have no end. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Language that was precious to the early fathers. Language that demonstrates, once again, God is stepping into history to do the miraculous and bring the greatest hope of all humanity. Born of the Virgin Mary. It's a line in the creed that that very likely was intended to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Now, as odd as this may sound to us, in the early centuries of the Roman Empire, there is evidence from the manuscripts that suggests that one of the strongest challenges to Christianity was not from those who claimed that Jesus was merely a man, but it actually came from those who claimed that he was not really human at all. That it was just an appearance of humanity. That he was only a spiritual being that seemed to be human, but was not. The early church said, no, 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 that's wrong. The most prominent name promoting this, what they referred to as a heresy, was a man named Marcion. Lived in the early, late first century and early second century. He denied the humanity of Jesus. And he had quite a following. It became troublesome to, to the growing churches. You might know the name Tertullian. African theologian, son of a Roman centurion. He was highly educated as a lawyer uh, when he was converted to the Christian faith, and he became an avid defender of the faith. It's in his writings that we first encounter the word Trinity. Here's what he had to say about Marcion. He who represented the flesh of Christ to be imaginary was equally able to pass off his nativity as a phantom. So that the virgin's conception and pregnancy and childbearing and then the whole course of her infant would have to be regarded as imaginary. Marcion and those like him were not well thought of by the church. Some of the language is really harsh. It's kind of fun to read. He was was referred to by some as a son of Satan. Evidently, his real birth was really important. The church affirmed it. The mystery of his birth. The Son of God became flesh, my friends. They knew that he came down the birth canal. They knew that that was bloody and messy. They knew that he nursed at his mother's breast. They knew that he needed to be changed because he pooped and peed. And they knew possibly that as a little boy, he probably peed on his mom while she was changing him. Because that's what little baby boys do. Human baby boys do that. Jesus was one. The church took his birth very seriously. And then the final statement in this clause, our Lord, we believe, I believe in our Lord and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now we say that pretty easily. But for the early Christians, as most of you know, living under the rule of Rome, it was radical. And these were considered subversive words. The title of Lord was was first claimed by the Roman, Roman emperor Domitian late in the first century. And his intent was to communicate that he was the supreme ruler. 
over everyone and everything. No one could challenge his authority. And this led to enormous persecution of Christians and Jews as well. Believers in God, um, Christians as believers in God and in the revelation of his son Jesus because they believed that there was someone who was higher than Domitian. This was not an innocuous statement. It kind of, it can become that for us because there's not necessarily a price attached to it. But for many in the early church, it was a death sentence. Now, did you notice the plural pronoun? Our Lord. The creed is all about I believe. I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. I believe in our Lord. I think that's my favorite part of the statement. It's a reminder that I'm not following Jesus alone. You are not following Jesus alone. We are in this together. We are part of this this great cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews refers to that had pledged themselves to a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And, And that's important because... If we're really going to be committed to living out the truth of Jesus as our Lord, then we're going to need to encourage one another and to support one another. A commitment to Jesus as Lord is the supreme commitment, my brothers and sisters. It's not just one of many commitments, all of them being equal. To be committed to Jesus Christ as Lord is saying that our ultimate commitment, hear me carefully, our ultimate commitment is not to family, even though family is very important. Our ultimate commitment is not to our country as blessed a life that we have been able to live in this country. Our ultimate commitment is not to Applewood Community Church, or our jobs, or can I say in these very partisan days to our political party, our ultimate commitment is to Jesus Christ, the supreme ruler of the universe, and to his kingdom, the values of which are very different than the values that drive the kingdoms of our world. To be committed to Jesus as Lord is to reject every other allegiance that calls to our hearts. That place, that place where each of us feels that desire to be safe and secure and comfortable and, and thought well of. Jesus never promised those things on earth. What he promised was a place in his Father's house to those who were faithful. And the testimony of the martyrs in the early church, that is evidence that those people esteemed Jesus as the supreme Lord over life and death. And so I want us to close this morning with this last slide. Don, if we can put that up. Jesus said to those who followed him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And he went on to teach that there will be many in in the last day 
who will say to me, Lord, we did great things in your name. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I, I never knew you. Amen. So we, we want to be people who take the seriousness of the Lordship of Christ uh, into our hearts and our minds. We want to be people who, when we claim Jesus as Lord, we ask questions about what does this mean in this situation? What does it mean in this relationship? What does it mean when I find myself here or there in this group or that group? Uh, What does the Lordship of Jesus imply in terms of what I might have to deny? Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare us to to close this morning. What, What am I willing to risk? Do I understand what I am risking when I claim Jesus as Lord? Let's pray together. Lord God, these ancient words um, have have been declared by your people for centuries. And I'm sure that there were many who didn't necessarily understand them. And we can find ourselves in that same camp. And then there were those who, who just clearly understood what it meant, how important Jesus was, uh, his life, his birth, that hill that they were willing to die on, his lordship that meant death for many. God, would you uh, teach us and challenge us as your people living in this day and age in a very blessed and, and most of the time very comfortable place? Would you challenge us with things that we take for granted with what sometimes might be very superficial understanding of what it means to claim Jesus as Lord. We don't want to be in that crowd that he doesn't know. We want to be joyful members of those that he welcomes into the Father's house. So Holy Spirit, you who are the presence of God in our lives, open our hearts and our minds that we might go more deeply into the truth of who you are and who Jesus is for us, we ask in his name.